0: Hey everybody! Welcome to a very special episode of I Saw What You Did. My name is Millie Decherico. I'm Danielle Henderson. And why are we so special? You're asking.
1: This is our 100th episode. Whoa! 200 movies. That's a lot of movies that we have presented to the to the public at large, Mm. and I can't believe it. It's
0: kind of wild. How are you feeling about 100 episodes in the in the, in the bank? It feels great. It feels like, um, it's, I don't know, it feels like a real accomplishment. Oh, t- I totally agree. I mean, sometimes when I'm in the podcast streets and I'm like, oh, there's only like f- seven episodes of this podcast. I'm like, okay, noted. And then when I see a podcast that's been on for like hundreds of episodes, I'm like, yeah. holy crap. That's a lot. That's a lot to sink into if I've never heard it, you know?
1: Yeah. And just thinking about, like, who we, like who and where we were when we started the podcast versus where we are now and how our lives have
0: changed. And it's kind of a nice constant. Am I going to put you on the spot right now if I ask you, give me, like, your top three favorite double features that we've done?
1: Oh, yeah. It's totally putting me on the spot. <laughs> but hang on. <laughs>
0: I know, I'm like, let's go back and look at what we've done, right, Quick? because
1: <laughs> I know right off the bat that I really loved um, uh, The Fly and Seconds, our first New Year, New Me.
0: Oh, yeah, that was so fun.
1: So fun. I really loved our Ganja and Hess and Losing Ground episode, the Bill Gunn episode.
0: Oh, yeah. Oh, my God, I was thinking about Bill Gunn today uh, because of our theme this week but anyway we'll talk about it
1: no i love that in the la rebellion like when we when we did to uh, sleep with anger and penitentiary yeah was great i th- have a real softness in my heart for the burbs and rear window our neighborhood creeps episode
0: mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. when you
1: delicately told everyone that jimmy stewart's boner was breaking through his cast
0: <laughs> that um yeah so people have have asked me about that in like in later days, and I'm I've been like, oh, I was dissociating when we recorded that episode. I remember saying it; it was so filthy. <laughs> that's
1: the best way to podcast when you're just like, my brain's off.
0: <laughs> you well, get that's what you get. see, that's your method, though. You've said that many times about how like you barely remember what you did. Like, once oh yeah. we're done with the episodes. You can't remember what you said, and I actually think that's a good way to go.
1: Yeah, it's just like, it's very natural, very organic, and I'm not holding myself back. It's just, what comes out is what comes out in the moment. Yeah, And I think in terms of that, that kind of ethos for our show, it's hard for me to narrow this down to three, as you can tell. But I think that if you are new to the podcast, or you want people to listen to the podcast, and you're like, what should I, what's the best representation of Millie and Danielle... It has to be our floor is lava episode when we did Joe versus the volcano and Dante's Peak. (laughs) I love that episode.
0: Do you think I'm trying to think now what what movie did we like collectively laugh the hardest at as we were recording? And it might be Dante's Peak. It might be like we both could not stop laughing, just thinking about the movie.
1: It could be Dante's Peak. We laughed our asses off, but also stayed them all the way up.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that too. That too.
1: <laughs> you got boner <laughs> problems.
0: <laughs> no, I swear, like, you know, I think I will say to our credit. I think we cover good spread in terms of the kinds of movies that we watch, right? Because we do talk about movies seriously and we have serious episodes, but then we have episodes where we're just like laughing at the film. And it's not, I don't think, in a mean way. It's almost just like our way of processing what we're watching on the screen, which I'm not saying like every movie that we've watched is art.
1: Right. Oh, hell no. (laughs)
0: <laughs> yeah. And when it when it's not art, it's just funny. It's funny to talk with you about it. And, you know, like there are so many episodes like that where I feel like, you know, I don't think we're trying to, you know, say anything more than just like having a genu- genuine love and appreciation for how the movie just makes us laugh. You know what I mean? It's not like, we're not being mean. We're just celebrating the absurdity.
1: Absolutely. Um, well, that's one of the things I really love about doing this podcast is that it's, you know, we are genuinely presenting movies to each other. And I just like hearing, I like how we both have different takes on on some things. And, and it's just the types of movies we pick and the movies that we do pick for our themes are, it gives us an ability to be like at our best in all possible ways. Like we can be funny, we can be smart, we can be thoughtful. Um, it just really... It's it's a good mix. It's a good mix, and it's exactly what we wanted to do. Like we, I'm I'm just I'm so I'm so happy because I feel like what we set out to do was create a podcast that introduced people to films or help people kind of have a different way to access film and film discussions and that's exactly what we've done and people constantly like even just recently people were saying you know someone commented on on instagram that they'd never seen harold and maude before and they watched it on a plane and it's not now like one of their favorite movies
0: yeah actually somebody approached me in atlanta not too long ago and said that they had never seen uh whatever happened to baby jane and then they listened to that episode that we did which by nice. the way was the hereditary episode just have to point <laughs> that out um a legendary episode for sure but yeah she she came up to me and said that she now loves betty davis and wants to watch all the betty davis movies and i'm just like That's that just awesome. made me very happy
1: i do get messages about people just saying great things about you which i love like, I oh, love when really people sweet. send me send me messages and say, like, Millie is so cool and so smart and I love this movie that she picked and I love this and I love your friendship. And that's something that I think we maybe didn't expect, but have both kind of, I feel like we've both kind of gotten used to it a little bit more, is that people comment on our friendship a lot. And I didn't expect that when we started this podcast, that, like, our friendship would be part of the show um, in a way that made people want to comment but you know they kind of really like how we support each other and how we talk to each other which is interesting and
0: cool yeah i mean i'm not going to lie i kind of did <laughs> i kind of i kind of expected people <laughs> because i feel like uh, i don't know i i think about the kinds of podcasts that i want to listen to and i think that in a in a way you have to kind of invest in who's talking to you you yes. know what i mean and like uh, uh it's audio is such an intimate medium, and you know if you don't if you don't really like somebody, it's very obvious very quickly. You know, yes. And there are people over you know who will not listen to the podcast because they can't stand the way that I talk or something or wh- who whatever oh. they don't like. That's fine.
1: My favorite is when they're like, "We don't like laughter," and I'm like, oh you got to check in with your heart on that one." But I get yeah. it. That's fine. You want someone to like. So a lot of people just like podcast where people are just reading them book reports like they're reading right. the shipping news and I'm like alright we're not A
0: yeah, no, 100% it's it's the same people it was so funny because I was on Twitter the other day and Alonzo Duralde I know I, I don't know if you know who he is but you know he uh, hosts many podcasts he's a film historian he's very very smart he uh, quoted this uh, this one tweet that was written by somebody I don't know who it was talking about how he can't, he, the person who wrote the original tweet says he doesn't understand why people talk at the beginning beginning of podcasts about their personal lives. And he is like, I can't believe they just don't like immediately get into what they're supposed to be talking about. And Alonzo said something to the effect of, well, that's the dividing line between someone who wouldn't listen to our podcast and someone who would. Do you know what I right. mean? Like, Absolutely.
1: Yeah, there are a lot of people who I'm like, oh, you want to be told a story from start to finish, and that is right. not this. Like, there are many different types of podcasts, many different ways into podcasting. And if we're not your cup of tea, that's completely fine. But it's for me, it's weird to listen to a podcast and not know anything about the person I'm listening to. Yeah,
0: Like, totally. I don't
1: prefer that, even if it's at the top where somebody's like, I'm a journalist, or like, tell me something. Like, give me some way into why I'm listening to you specifically.
0: I really feel this, and I feel like, when it comes to what we're trying to do, like, I mean, anybody can review movies, right? Like, right. there are hundreds of movie podcasts where people are just kind of giving their takes, right? Mm-hmm. I I feel like what our podcast is doing is sort of trying to get people to understand the relationship between, like, you know, um, the viewer and a film, right? So it's right. not like... We're not always coming from this like exalted place of expertise and you know and sort of knowledge, film history knowledge. Sometimes it's like, here's a who who am I in the world and how do I process films? Because right. a lot of times these films were not made for me. They were made for you know people who have like the general experience of you know white straight you know set supremacy or whatever. So it's that thing of like, right. I don't feel like we can just jump on the mic and be like here's my review or here's my take of this movie without giving a little context about who we are as people exactly and that's why we wanted to do this
1: show in the in the first place cuz i feel like we we have listened to so many and consumed so many critical you know films through a critical lens that that weren't from our perspective or didn't speak to us and did feel a little bit um like inaccessible and so i think that Yeah, like, it wouldn't make sense to hear us talking about, like, Love and Basketball and Brown Sugar in in an episode if you didn't know anything about us growing up in the 90s or us as people and kind of the cultural place that we come from.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, like, I I would rather hear from somebody like you about a movie like Hood or like a movie like even Gleaming the Cube, you know? It's like... Another yeah, classic I know what, episode. <laughs> I know what like most teenage boys thought of Gleaming the Cube when you right. know that movie came out, but like what about you? Like who were you when it came out and like what's your specific experience that made you either appreciate or not appreciate a film? I mean, I don't know. I just think that that's interesting and maybe some people just don't want the personality they just were like well i just want the facts and i'm like well you will not enjoy our podcast exactly (laughs) it's it's not gonna happen for you and that's fine
1: fucking moving keep it moving my favorite though (laughs) Ah, (laughs) we are so thankful for our audience which i'll talk about in a minute but My absolute favorite review of all time of our podcast is someone gave us one star and just wrote, nope, with an exclamation point.
0: Oh, yeah, I saw that. (laughs) Ah! (laughs) I was was hoping they were talking about the Jordan Peele movie, Nope, but I guess No, no, they're like, just nope. And I'm like, great, solid. You don't need to get
1: more into it. It's not for you. That's fine. But it just made me laugh so fucking hard that it was like one star, nope. (laughs) 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 <laughs> but yeah. I do think that in that way, because I, I am, again, we've talked about this in previous episodes and we talk about this a lot, but I'm more private than people would assume I am. And so I've, you know, I've deactivated my Twitter account. I don't allow messages on my, <laughs> my Instagram from people I don't know. Um, like, I'm pretty shut off in a lot of ways. So reading reviews, reading comments is kind of like the way that I like to connect to our audience and y'all are fucking hilarious. And your emails, like, you guys are so funny and smart and thoughtful. I just, I feel truly like we have the greatest audience. Like, people who have our same sense of humor, who are very quick to laugh and just, like, you know, kind of lighter side of life. And But again, really thoughtful and and emotional and vulnerable. And I don't think you get that from a lot of audiences. I just feel like we've cultivated something really special.
0: I agree. And yeah, very thankful for this experience and for um, connecting with so many people. And, you know, I, you know, obviously for me, it's, it's a joy because I feel like I can just really be myself in a lot of ways Mm -hmm. on this podcast. I mean, you know, like I said, not that I'm not myself on some of the other stuff that I do, but it, it's just a different world. I feel like, you know, in, when I'm out there, like doing things sort of, Professionally, for my career, that kind of stuff. Like, it, I just feel a little bit more pressure to, you know, I don't know, present myself as like a polished like individual. And with this podcast, it's like I can just like say the say the f word all the time and talk about boner shattering casts and stuff. like that. I mean, it's it's a it's it's like a way for me to kind of relax and um, and also I feel like too with the, with the movies we pick. Um, I like that the structure is where we choose our own movies. Right. Right. Because a lot of times with other film podcasts, you don't choose the movies. It's part of some theme of of the show or, Mm -hmm. you know, like I've done so many podcasts where they're like, we're only going to talk about movies from 1961 and 1969. And you have to pick that's the, you know, right. The the metric. And then I'm like, oh, my God, like, I got to go and do all this legwork and kind of figure out what I'm going to say. But, um, you know, for this one, it's fun because we pick our own movies. So. Well, that And that's something I
1: wanted to ask you to, and not, not to put you on the spot, but I think that in terms of the movies that we pick, I think it showcases a lot of who we are and what we like to watch. And has it impacted your professional career? Like now that you're moving into a different stage of your career, like, do you think that the work we do on the podcast is going to influence what you do going forward? Like, do you want to do more things where you feel like yourself? Do you want to be more of a, an expert? Do you want to be more of... Um, like, a traditional role, a non-traditional role, like, not necessarily forcing you to think of what you're going to do next, but just curious about how this experience where you do get to be so free and be so much yourself has impacted, like, the rest of your film career.
0: Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm a lot more broad on this show than I ever was. You know, okay, so when I was a programmer, you know, uh, over at TCM, like, I programmed all kinds of stuff there, too. Like, you know, a lot of people thought I only did, like, cult movies, and I'm, I was, like, the cult movie girl, and that was just my only interest. I mean, I programmed that, the whole rest of that network, too, you know, alongside my coworkers, of course. But, you know, I did, you know, I worked on Noir Alley with Eddie. I I worked on Silent Sunday Nights with Jacqueline. Like, I did imports with Alicia. So that's like, you know, foreign films, silence, noirs. Then I programmed, like, pretty much stuff during the day and on the weekends. So Sundays with Grandpa, that was all my shit. Like, all of the Westerns and, like, all of the rom-coms and stuff. So it's like... It was broad for me in that way. And I think a lot of people, though, didn't understand that I was doing that. So they were like, oh, you only program, like, weird, crazy cult movies. And that is the only thing that we want to talk to you about, right? It's like, what's your take on this cult movie? What's your take on, you know, X, Y, and Z? With the podcast, I feel like, in a way, I sort of went away from that where I felt like I was talking a lot more about, like, 70s, 80s, 90s, like, more more recent movies. Of course, you know, I don't watch, I have not watched movies past 2000. So, (laughs) I'm I'm learning, thanks to you, about movies from the 2000s and later. But, um, (laughs) but even, like, being able to talk about, you know, I don't know, like, the way we were, or, you know, even, like, stuff that you've picked, like, 90s films and Hereditary and, you know, that kind of stuff. That's interesting to me, too. And so, I feel like, yeah, yeah, maybe, like, In this uh, new phase of life, maybe I'll be able to kind of, like, expand my, I guess, my expertise more, or at least verbalizing my expertise, right? Yes.
1: Yeah, because you already have it, and it's a part of who you are. And it's even thinking back to, like, you know, you being in school and film school and going back for your graduate degree and... and you know, you're focusing more on on gender politics and like it's all there already. It's just that like you haven't been given a platform to really um vocalize that until now. So I'm just I'm really happy that you get to show to show off a little bit and the kind of showcase that you are knowledgeable about film in many different ways, not just cult classics or cult films, um, but that you have just the kind of built-in institutional knowledge about that world.
0: Yeah. Well, no, yeah. And I and I I'm I'm glad again to be in this space with you, because I know that when we first started, you know, we were kind of like, okay, well, obviously, like, I'm a film programmer and you're a television writer, and we just go to the movies all the time, and that's set up, right? But I feel like I I, I feel like you maybe at the beginning thought, you know, I mean, I can understand it being kind of intimidating to do a film podcast because there's just so many like film podcast stereotypes out there. And I know that it was our m- mission to make something that was not that, right? Right. Um, but I feel like you've become less intimidated by the this world over time. And I feel like you're really in it. You're in it. You have uh, a critical opinion. You have something to say. You you know it doesn't matter if you didn't go to film school or whatever at this point like you're just here to process the films that you watch and i think a lot of people like really lean into your perspective which is awesome and necessary so
1: thank you yeah i do i feel really comfortable like i feel like um like this has really given me a chance to to be more confident about the fact that you know i've always been film enthusiast. I've always loved movies. And that I don't have to think about that or talk about it in a very specific way to be taken seriously. I think it's okay to just love movies. And, um, you know, I have a lot of absurd movies that I love, a lot of classics that I love, things that I try to, like when we did that Cleo from 9 to 5 and Gas Food Lodging episode, like, you know, me talking about how there there is a way into French cinema if you want to get into it and you don't have to know everything about Godard to get into it or a Delon, like you can, there's a starting point. So I kind of feel like if that's who I am to our audience, I love it. Like I like being kind of the, the person who can let it be okay for you to introduce things into your own life that you normally wouldn't have watched. And I just, I really love movies and I really love talking about movies. I think it's one of the art forms that gives me the most access to my own thoughts and my own feelings. And, um, I just, I love it. I love being transported to another world. I just, I really love film. (laughs) And so I think it's, not only is it okay that I haven't gone to film school, I think it's kind of in some ways better in some instances. Like, there are definitely times where I'm like, I just want to talk about the burbs. (laughs) Like, I don't have to go to film school for that. (laughs) You know, I just want to talk about this impactful movie that I watched constantly as a kid that has definitely impacted my personality as an adult.
0: Well, and like, listen, this is not to begrudge film school because I, you know, I I went through it and I actually thought it was great. I had a great experience in film school, but like, I don't know, as I'm moving through the world now and talking to younger people, especially like when you and I talk to younger people, like people in college, like undergrad college and especially like high school, I feel like that traditional stuffy film school environment is changing a lot. Yeah. And I feel like. You know, obviously, the interests of people are changing when it comes to film. And streaming has done that. Like, TikTok has done that. The internet Mm -hmm. has done that. Where, you know, I I don't know necessarily if having that, like, two-and-a-half-hour lecture on Godard is, like, as important as it was for somebody my age who went to film school. Right. I mean... I, I definitely think that history is important. I think yes. that people should learn the history and learn um the foundations of of mm-hmm. what they love. I mean, like that's why people need to take art appreciation classes. That's why, you know, foundations classes exist for literature and, you know, art and everything. But I also don't think that it means that you're an idiot if you're if you're not really fucking want to learn about the ins and outs of auteur theory you know i mean i think that i don't know it's it's going to be interesting to see like what film um education is going to be in the next like 10 15 years because you know i don't know it's it's a different environment and there's a lot of like there's the gatekeepers are pretty much gone at this point and i think people Mm -hmm. are out there like starting film podcast with only just a genuine love of movies without any like formal training
1: absolutely i i love i love that world i like i like to see that openness and i like to see that people are doing it in the same way we did which is like we just like this we want to try it and you know I'm, i'm really grateful to karen and georgia um and everyone at exactly right for kind of seeing that that was valuable in a way that, you know, they they valued the fact that it was important to us and they thought that we had something to offer. And I just think that's really special and cool. And it's great to be part of, you know, a, a network that believes in us.
0: Yeah, I definitely agree. And thanks to everybody who supported us, like, you know, throughout the years, uh, we couldn't have made it to 100 years young without you guys. <laughs> so we appreciate it.
1: We could not have made this podcast for a hundred years without you and Lestat and a lot of border black magic.
0: (laughs) We need to have, God, I wish, I wish we had one of those like highlight reels. It's like 100 (laughs) years of I saw what you did. And then it's like, you know, us like. And a Buzz, Busby Berkeley stage, like, doing Rocket kicks. And then we're, like, in our moody James Dean moment. And then we're, like, in our godfather phase. And then you know, it was, like, all those, like, fuck— I'm sorry, did I just reveal the end of Babylon? But that's exactly what should <laughs> we should have this podcast, a.
1: Well, I think we should. Not only that, I think we should hand this podcast off, like, a baton. Like, when we're ready to, to call it quits, be like, we have picked two successors to keep this shit going. And then, like, someone comes in, like, a fucking 19-year-old comes in on a hoverboard. is like, what's up, chumps? (laughs) We're here to talk about TikTok and TikTok only, or whatever the new version of TikTok is, like hologram videos.
0: Um, I'm actually just an AI creation. I'm not even a human (laughs) being.
1: Oh, my God, could we gift this podcast to AI to carry on the (laughs) legacy forever?
0: Imagine an AI version of this podcast. It would be... (laughs) Who would talk about dumps the way that we
1: do? Thank you. I just want to know, like, who would give Casey Hazard pay every time I talk about my butt? Um, what would an AI, what movies would AI pick?
0: They would pick AI, number one. <laughs> 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 their, their origin story. <laughs> <laughs> it's their Casablanca.
1: Um, is, is there anything, do you have any hopes or dreams for the next 100 episodes?
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I don't know. I just, you know, I want us to have fun. That's all I want to do is have fun, you know? And I hope that, you know, I, I, I just hope that, you know, more people come on the ride with us, obviously. Like, if you know somebody that would enjoy something like this, tell a friend. Um, tell five. Know. Yeah, tell five tell 100 friends also i would love to try to do some live stuff yeah um i know that (laughs) live episodes of podcasts are a little like tbd sometimes but um i feel like we could have fun we've done it before we didn't record it obviously um but i would love to and i would love to go to like other places besides the US if, you know, like we hear yeah. from people in Europe a lot and, you know, in Australia and New Zealand. So it would be fun to go there too, to do I agree. some live stuff.
1: I think. Th- I think the key to doing a good live podcast is that you don't record it because there's nothing weirder than listening to a live podcast and they're doing stuff visually on stage without explaining it. And then you're like, I don't understand what's happening here. This is not fun for me. So we do it. And then the, the joy is you get to come see us live and you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know what's going to happen. And I think that that's the key. It's like we just do it without recording it and just go and meet some people who are great, our great audience.
0: Well, unless we had Keanu live, like a live event, then we'd have to record it to prove that it happened.
1: <laughs> oh, pictures would do that. Although <laughs> there, there is that weird um, fake Keanu Instagram Have you ever seen that?
0: No, I have not.
1: I cannot (laughs) believe I haven't sent you one. Uh, Okay, for the listeners, all I do on Instagram is menace Millie with, like, sending her DMs. (laughs) I just, my goal is only to make her laugh as hard as possible. (laughs) And (laughs) I specifically, my specific corner of that is uh, there are a couple of people who do these like age regression videos where they show a a celebrity now and then they go back (laughs) to their early years. Good lord. (laughs) I don't know why I love them so much and I don't know why I love sending them to you so much. But there is an account where it's like a fake, like a deep fake Keanu doing stuff. Like cleaning the toilet or whatever. Yeah, Like cooking.
0: Look, I if we could get him the real Keanu We'll put a fake toilet on stage. We'll get him to clean it while talking to us about Point Break or... No, I honestly, like, I'm so excited to be here with you after 100 episodes. It's such a fucking pleasure doing the podcast with you, as I say at the end of every episode. And um, here's to 100, 200, 300 more. High five. This is our 100th episode, but it is also an episode... Um, that we're doing to celebrate Black History Month. Uh, we've done one previous. A couple weeks ago, we did the Aaliyah double feature. And Danielle, why don't you tell everybody what we're going to focus on this week?
1: Well, our theme this week is our first famous Tyson. Uh, we're talking, of course, about Sicily Tyson. And we decided to focus on legacy for this version of Black History Month, and I think Cicely Tyson is pr- a primo example of the legacy of, of Black actors and Black film, Black filmmaking. Um, so we just kind of picked two, two movies that we think she's great in, and um, just again, wanted to really talk about legacy. Cicely Tyson died last year And she released her memoir, Just As I Am, two days before she died. And what a life. I mean, a lot of what I'm going to read from and quote from is from her New York Times obituary. And you want to lead a life that leads you to this kind of obituary. I I highly recommend reading the whole thing. I highly recommend reading her book. I just started the book, actually. But she's led such an interesting life. And from the beginning has really been someone who held on to her morals and her values um, at a time when that was really difficult to do if you wanted to be a Black actor who made a name for themselves. So, you know, she died at 96. She was making films, movies, and acting in plays for 70, over 70 years. She had seven decades in this business, which is huge, huge. And she won Tonys and Emmys, and she won uh, an honorary Oscar uh, a few years again before her death, and was nominated for an Oscar for my film. One one thing I can say about Cicely Tyson is that she's always been a real bastion of of possibility for Black culture. And what I mean by that is that she was really idolized um, by Black culture long before she was idolized by by white culture for a couple of reasons. Um, Right off the bat, early in her career... She refused to do roles that showcased black people in a negative light. Like she didn't want to do anything that denigrated black folks. Um, and again, this is from her obituary, the New York Times, but uh, I quote She was adamant about dramatic roles. We black actresses have played so many prostitutes and drug addicts and housemaids, always negative, uh, she told Parade Magazine in 1972. I won't play that kind of characterless role anymore, even if I have to go back to starving. So again, we're looking at a time that she came up in, you know, she started acting in the 40s, 50, well, 50s, um, and just really refused to lean into what was a, lo- a large part of the cultural stereotype at the time for Black actors. And she's like, I won't do it. There's got to be something else. And part of what helped her launch her uh, into acting in a way that she felt comfortable was my movie, um, it, Sounder, in 1972. And she plays Rebecca, who's the wife of this Louisiana sharecropper. And it really is a story of our history, of Black history, but it also shows a lot of strength, and I think I picked it for that reason, too, that it shows some strength and some humility and some some reality. And it didn't make... So many of these films that you know I watched that showcase... You know, Depression Era black folks or um, Southern black folks in the in, in that era are always just filled with strife, misery. There is a lot of that in the film, but you're also looking at a family, and you're also looking at a very strong mother who kept a family together in the midst of one of their greatest heartaches. So what she what she says about the the film is that the story of Sounder is a part of our history, a testimony to the strength of humankind. Um, our whole Black heritage is that of struggle, pride, and dignity. The Black woman has never been shown on the screen this way before. So I think that, you know, when I saw this film, versus a younger person, then watched it many, many times over the years, that was evident right away. And it felt different, and it felt very personally interesting to me to be able to see a Black woman portrayed in that way, because that's what I lived with. That's what, who my family was. That's what I was... Raised with, um, were a bunch of women who just pulled it the fuck together, <laughs> and just yeah. you know kept not only families alive but neighborhoods and and culture and beyond. You know, since it's Black History Month, I think, and since we just <laughs> just had uh the holiday celebrating Reverend Doctor Martin Luther King, I think it's also important that like nowadays, when I look back at historically at, at Black women in in culture. Um, I think it's important for me to recognize that they held a lot of strength and dignity and pride in what they did. Um, particularly if, you, if you're not following Bernice King, um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s daughter, one of his do- one of his kids, she constantly, whenever she references her father, um, she also references her her mother, Coretta Scott King. And I just really love that, where she'll show herself, like a picture of herself as a child playing violin next to her mother who's playing the piano and say, you know, my mother taught us too. Like my mother also taught us about what it meant to be a strong and proud Black, Black woman or a strong and proud Black person. Um, and I think about how interesting it is that for, for women like Cicely Tyson and Coretta Scott King and beyond, that they often take the back burner to their more famous partners. So, Cicely Tyson was famously married to Miles Davis from 1981 to 1989. And I think that it's, you know, again, I don't feel like she was, she lost anything for being married to him, but it definitely was a time in her life and in her career where the focus was more on who she was married to instead of who she was. But she just kept this, I don't know, she just has, there's something very regal about her. She was kind of the idol of the Black is Beautiful movement. Um, and she really just kind of embraced Blackness in a way that, again, at the time that she was doing it, it wasn't popular. Um, so again, from her obituary, Ms. Tyson was an idol of the Black is Beautiful movement, regal in an African turban and caftan, her face gracing the covers of Ebony, Essence, and Jet magazines. She was a vegetarian, a teetotaler, a runner, a meditator— um, and from 1981 to 1989, the wife of jazz trumpeter and composer Miles Davis, uh, since the 1960s, she had inspired black women to embrace their own standards of beauty, including helping to popularize the Afro. Uh, and Vanessa Williams said, She is our Meryl Streep in 2013. She was the person you wanted to be like in terms of an actress, in terms of the role she got, and how serious she took her craft. She still is. Uh, she also helped found the Dance Theater of Harlem and the East Harlem Building where she lived as a kid was named for her. Um, you know, there are magn- there are schools named for her, there are performing arts places named for her. She really had a huge impact on Black culture and on culture in general for her whole life. But her, her impact and her legacy was built into who she was as a person. And that's something that's also very... Interesting to me about her film career is that you don't feel like there's a separation. You can feel that she's, of course, acting, but you don't feel like there's a separation. And I think it's because of the roles that she chose that helped us to see her in a more full light that we also got to see what that looked like at large um, on screen.
0: Yeah. Well, gosh, that's a great tribute to... Cicely Tyson, who is the focus of our episode this week. Uh, It's so surprising to me that you said that she was a vegetarian and a teetotaler because she was 96 when she died. So Mm -hmm. she was healthy, healthy, healthy. And And uh, she ran
1: and she meditated.
0: Yeah, it's amazing.
1: (laughs) And And you know what's also interesting to me is that I read about how because I remember hearing this when, you know, after she had had passed away, um, her service was at the Abyssinian Church in, in Harlem, which is a very famous church. It's gorgeous. And Tyler Perry, you know, gave part of her eulogy or, you know, kind of stood up and, and spoke. And she writes about this in her book. And he said that even though she was a really proud woman, because she wrote about it in her book, he felt okay saying it out loud, that he took care of her for the last 15 years of her life. Um, he paid her a million dollars for one day on a film, Uh, And he really took care of her needs for the last 15 years of her life. And that's because even though she is this incredible and prominent and hugely important actress and hugely important person, she was not paid well or rewarded for that work. She got paid $6,000 for Sounder. And you can give all the honorary Oscars you want, but that is is meaningful to, to focus on. The fact that this woman, who meant so much to so many, was not rewarded for her work monetarily, and reached a point in her later years where, without the help of Tyler Perry, she may have been in really dire straits, and it makes me so sad for her, so sad for our world <laughs> that that's how we treat our elders. Um, but it also makes me really just kind of happy that she had the kind of respect, and and he talks about it in that way that he wanted to pay her the respect that he thought she was owed her whole life. Yeah. So,
0: yeah. Well, I, I have to say, I'm excited about this double feature this week. I mean, your film is a masterpiece in my mind. And I'm so glad that uh, I'm so, so excited to hear you talk about it. And then uh, my film this week, I know I'm going first, um, is her first movie. So, um, and it was mm-hmm. made only a couple years before Sounder. So, uh, I think it's a pretty good representation of the films that she was um, she was in, and, and her acting and what she was capable of. And I'm excited to get started.
1: Me too. And I really think it's inter- we could have had two different themes for this as well. One being movies based on books, which both of our films are. Right. Um, or I think an, a good alt for this week's theme is Cicely Tyson is going to get that leg. (laughs) Cicely Tyson is coming for that leg. Men, beware. (laughs)
0: Leg trauma. I did not realize that that was a... (laughs) Another theme we could have gone on to this week. Holy shit. I know what it means. I was watching. I'm like, ooh, she's coming for that
1: leg. <laughs> Even if it's wow. not her personally, being part of her orbit means watch those legs.
0: Yeah. Wow. Holy <laughs> shit. Well, on that note, um, I uh, my movie this week is um, from 1968. The screenplay was written by Thomas Ryan, uh, obviously from a book of the same name by Carson McCullers, directed by Robert Ellis Miller, and it's called The Heart is a Lonely Hunter.
1: I felt very old. And it was
0: like something was heavy inside me. I'd become a grown person now, whether I wanted to be or not. I love your movie so much. I do too. I I really do. And, you know, like I said, it... it, uh, As everyone probably knows, um, this is the film adaptation of the Carson McCullers book. Carson McCullers was 23 when that book Mm -hmm. came out, which I think is pretty remarkable. But you know me, I'm a Southern gal, so I'm a a fan of kind of that Southern Gothic writing. Um, So I had to see this movie at some point. And, um, you know, the book takes place in the 1930s, but the movie is, in modern times— So when it was made, so the 60s. So it's interesting because this movie is kind of like, there's a lot going on. It's kind of like a slice of life type film. Mm -hmm. And it has a lot of different storylines. So I'll just probably try to give like the bigger points of the film, hopefully, and maybe just talk about some of the characters a little bit. So this movie is centered around a man named John Singer. And he is played by a young Alan Arkin.
1: Absolute royalty.
0: Royalty. Um, I was trying to remember when the first time I saw Alan Arkin was. And I have to say I think it was in So I Married an Axe Murderer. <laughs> <laughs> when he plays the like police chief of the yes. Anthony Lapaglia character. Okay, same, same, same. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like wait he's been around for a long time like what oh do you mean? my god and, th- and that is the thing that always happens when so like yeah when you see like an older actor that's in like a broad comedy like a mike myers movie or like a judd apatow movie and you're like oh that old guy's really funny and then you're like oh he's been around since like the 50s and 60s yeah. right and that's kind of like what happened unfortunately for me and Alan Arkin was, I was like, Alan Arkin's so funny, and so I married an ex-murder. And this is like in middle school, when I first saw, you know, so exactly. I married an ex-murder. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute, but he's been around forever. So um he is, he is uh, wearing lots of suits in this. So you may not uh, recognize him maybe at first, but it's definitely him. And his character, Singer, um is deaf and doesn't speak. And he is living in a small town in the rural South, right? Where he works as an engraver. I guess he engraves silver.
1: And and in an alt timeline, he would have been the founder of Things Remembered.
0: (laughs) I don't know when Things Remembered was started, but maybe that is the origin story.
1: That would be a great origin story
0: for for Things Remembered. (laughs) Alan Arkin just like hammering out little... uh, (laughs) Old ah. english letters <laughs> our founder <laughs> sat in the back <laughs> didn't want to talk to anybody
1: <laughs> did not want to talk to anybody could absolutely read lips did not want to hear from any of y'all <laughs> yeah
0: um but he um he has a friend so singer you know obviously deaf doesn't doesn't speak and uh but he has his friend named Spiros okay and Spiros has a cognitive disability um, and Singer basically looks after him and in the book I think that they like live together um, I don't think that they really flesh that out in the film but you know you understand yeah. pretty quickly at the very beginning of the film that they're um, connected and, that's, and that Singer is kind of taking care of Sparrows right so at the beginning of the movie very beginning uh, Sparrows robs a, a pastry store uh, turns out he's obsessed with sweets, which, I mean, I get it. <laughs> there's there's a moment where Sparrows is being wooed with a Whitman sampler or like a Whitman's box of chocolates. And I was like, I have been there, unfortunately. Um, <laughs> I've been wooed with, with chocolates in a box. But uh, essentially, you know... Sparrow's uncle who owns a store in the town is like, uh, I don't want to deal with him anymore, and I'm thinking about just kind of sending him away to an institution, like, miles from here, hundreds of miles from here, right? And Singer, after that happens, Singer decides to move closer to the hospital, and he ends up renting a room with this working-class family, and the teenage daughter of this working-class family is named Mick, and she is played by the actress Sandra Locke, whom I love, and I want to just really encourage people to read about Sandra Locke, if you can, like even if it's just like her Wikipedia article, because she also led a really fascinating life. And there's a lot of uh point details in her life story, which are very interesting. She was with Clint Eastwood for many years. It was very tumultuous um with the two of them especially towards the end of their relationship and her kind of place in hollywood and um yeah and but she's also like she was like in an open marriage for like 50 years she was one of the first women celebrities to discuss abortion and you know talk about you shouldn't have kids and she didn't want kids so there's like a lot in her story that I think is really interesting too so just if you get a moment, go look her up. She's very interesting. But, um, the thing about Mick, her character in this film is that she wants like all the stuff that teenage girls want. Like she wants to, like, you know, go out with friends and have parties and have a boyfriend and listen to music. But her family is poor. Her dad is out of work. He is suffering from an injury. Uh, and her mom is, you know, a real hard ass. Like mm-hmm. it really doesn't want her to kind of do anything more than just, you know, contribute to the family and not bother anybody, right? Yeah,
1: she's the oldest of three kids, and it's just kind of like her mom is just so withholding and just kind of sees her as, like, chattel.
0: Yeah, pretty much. And, I mean, that's something, too, I think, about the link between our films is is poverty and, and the idea of people who have to sacrifice education for, mm-hmm. you know... um, for economic stability for the family. Um, Mick, one of Mick's, like, younger siblings, I have to say, is this, like, real classic little smart-ass eight-year-old.
1: Okay, we got to talk about (laughs) Bubber. Because one of my favorite fucking things about this movie is everything Bubber says. Yes. But also the fact that he has a friend Called spare ribs.
0: <laughs> that is literally right. My last sentence in this paragraph that I wrote was that most importantly, he has a friend named spare ribs. <laughs> and there's a, there's a scene in the movie where like Mick ends up having a party for like her high school friends. And then like the three, like her younger brother and maybe two of his friends are, are over and they're like shooting off fireworks and like ruining her party. And I'm like, which one is spare ribs? Is spare ribs at the party? <laughs> I gotta I know. I
1: get over. I love. He's like classic little brother, but just plays it to a fucking T. Yeah,
0: I mean, he is like one of the like. He's kind of got like a, you know, a real a smarmy attitude. You know, we love talking about like little brothers and sisters in film, uh, and he's 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 one. He's up there. He's definitely one of the best. So here's the thing about Singer. So Singer's living in this house, you know, and. You know, Mick is sort of drawn towards him because he's interesting and, like, he's a stranger. And, you know, obviously, like, the family understands that he, you know, is deaf and mute. And, you know, there's a little bit of insensitivity towards that, obviously, with kids, because they're just kind of saying things. They're using really outdated terms for things. But she kind of, like, takes a shine to him and he... Uh, and starts kind of confiding in him a little bit about like her love of classical music, and and you know she um, wants to get a piano for the house, but the family can't afford it. But so one day, singer is at a diner, and he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, this drunk guy comes in, and the drunk guy is played by my man Stacey Keach.
1: I love how much in the way that we only, up until Sneakers, showcased Robert Redford in a certain light on this podcast, I love that we have only talked about Stacey Keach's most dirtbag roles.
0: Okay, his role in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter is kind of like the spiritual ancestor to his role in Fat City. Yeah. Like, it's another guy who's down on his luck and he drinks too much, right? <laughs> that That's, that's... <laughs> to put it mildly. <laughs> yes. To note this is Stacy Keach's first movie too. So um and he comes out all guns blazing like he's just like <laughs> harassing people in this diner. They kick him out. And then he goes outside and he starts throwing himself against a wall. I mean he's in real he's in a real state, okay? And singer comes out and wants to help this guy, right? Um and Out of the corner of his eye, he sees this Black doctor who's walking by, okay? And this doctor is played by Percy Rodriguez, the actor Percy Rodriguez. And Singer, you know, communicates, hey, can you help this guy out? He's bloodied and, you know, he's killing himself, basically. Um, And the doctor straight up says, I do not help white people. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I'm not helping this man. And, you know, you're like very compelled by the reasoning for that, obviously. But then, you know, Singer sort of, like, plays with him a little bit, and then he finally agrees, right? So the character of Dr. Copeland now kind of enters the story. And he becomes friends with Singer at a certain point. And, you know, Singer is offering to pay him for helping out the Stacey Keach character, but, you know, the doctor doesn't want his money. And then he, they finally agree to a... Um, a situation where you know Singer can help one of his patients who also is deaf. And so it's it's um they kind of develop a, a friendship. And then, you know, much like the Mick character, the doctor begins to kind of tell Singer about the complicated relationship that he has with his daughter Portia, who is played by Cicely Tyson, right? And you know, this relationship in the film I think is really important. Because it mm-hmm. kind of shows, it's doing a lot of things. Because, you know, this movie, I think, is doing a lot. It's it's talking about disability, obviously. You're right. It's talking about class. It's talking about race. And at the center of it is the singer character, right? Mm-hmm. And I understand, like, what the narrative is trying to communicate, which is that, isn't it interesting that this man who doesn't talk is now kind of like hearing everybody else in town talk, right?
1: Mm-hmm. And he's kind of like the like the Forrest Gump centerpiece of this film. Like this could also be a Forrest Gump origin story. Yeah. Like he impacts all of these lives, and his his him simply being part of people's lives changes their lives and impacts their lives deeply.
0: Right, right. Which I know has its own like connotations, but it's also like. I think that Singer has a genuine need to help people, and he he wants to, and um, I I think he does care to to be in these people's lives. But the but the thing about Dr. Copeland and his daughter is that there's all these like you know Dr. Copeland is a, a successful doctor, right? Mm-hmm. And he's 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 black in the South in a time of you know horrible racism and white supremacy. And so it's just, it's got a lot of things going on because Portia, you know, is sort of at this point in her life where, you know, her father wanted her to be a doctor. The mother had passed away and he was kind of putting all of his hopes into the daughter and she decided instead to marry you know, a man who has, a you know, a very, like, working-class job and just sort of she decides that she wants to be a housekeeper. And, like, so his, his, the, the dad is just very, like, uh, he can't understand why she would not want to follow in his footsteps, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think that the Porsche character is, it's kind of the center of their strife is the idea that he doesn't like who she is and what she what she wants to do, right? Yeah, there's so much
1: disappointment baked into their relationship from the beginning and her her the way she reacts to him is kind of like I don't care, like I'm a modern woman making my own choices. And it's nice to see that on screen because again, usually we see in a, in a more traditional film, we would have seen this as like, well, she's part of the talented 10th and, you know, she should be a doctor and she should succeed and she should be carrying on her father's legacy. And But she's kind of looking at it from a more modern perspective and saying, like, I am happy. I made a choice to be in love and I made a choice to love who I wanted to love. And that should be enough for, for you because it's already enough for me, which is... Again, like something that I really appreciate about seeing that kind of character on screen, and it's revolutionary at this point in time to see somebody like that on screen,
0: right? And like, and their relationship reminds me a lot of you know Carrie Washington and her father in Scandal or something. It's like right. you know, he, like the father, you know, the reason why he's reluctant to help white people is because they've never helped him. They don't right. respect him. They they don't respect him in spite of him being like the best person he could be, right? A doctor, a successful mm-hmm. doctor. So it's that situation where it's he's he's basically communicating to her, you have to work twice as hard to be half as good as all these other people. And she's just kind of like, Well, I'm not going to because I've I've choose a different life. And I just it it's very a very interesting relationship. Um and so things get even more complicated for them too. When one night Portia and her husband are out at the fair, and then these three young white guys basically accuse her husband of assaulting one of their girlfriends and they attack him with a knife. And in self defense, he grabs the knife as they're tussling and defends himself, which then sets up this whole like chain of events for them. And, you know, Portia really wants her father to save her husband because, mm-hmm. again, here you have a black man who is essentially you know, being set up to be this, like, this person who's assaulted these white guys. And she's like, well, you know, I know that my father has power in some way in the neighborhood, and so if she can talk, you know, if he can talk to the sheriff and say, like, you were there, you saw everything, and you know that he didn't do it. He didn't start the fight. Mm-hmm. But he sort of refuses because he doesn't want to lie. And he, you know, so it's very, very complicated. and uh, And she really, like, is disappointed by her father for not, Doing that, Right. For not helping them out. And, you know, their, their story again, like kind of gets even more complicated than that. At a certain point, I won't give it away. But the thing about it is, again, there's all these like different stories. There's all these different people coming together. And it's all kind of, Sarah, the Alan Arkin character is in the middle of everything. And, you know, like I said, I think the messaging of the film is basically like, look who, you know, look at all these people who are kind of like, this character, of singer, is woven into the, all these different people's lives, and it transcends kind of, like, class and race, and, you know, he, he's kind and helpful, but there's also maybe, like, a part of him that's lonely, um, and that really comes across with the Mitt character. I think he kind of, like, communicates that he's lonely and maybe wants to be cared for, too, because a lot of what people do is they kind of enter into his life, he ends up helping, and then they kind of go away which I think mm-hmm. is mostly like what happens with the Stacey Keach character. Cause I guess what happens with Stacey Keach is that he cleans himself up and gets a job. And, you know, he, he was supposed to have, you know, this standing chess game with Singer. And then he's like, well, I got a job, so I can't, can't hang out with you now. See you later. You know? And Singer is kind of like bummed because it's like, okay, well I helped this guy out and now, you know, yeah, it's kind of over and I don't know how I fit in with people. Which is a very interesting concept to me, right? Because as people, we think about that all the time, right? We're like, well, I, do I really have friends or am I just helping people out? That's bleak. <laughs> <laughs> no, listen, I never said this was going to be a blast.
1: <laughs> but it's it's true. It's like usually the, our, our, the way we conceptualize loneliness is that there are people that stay away from from other people. And in this film... And book. It's like, well, he's someone who's trying his hardest to be part of his community and still feels lonely. It's yeah. so sad., Ugh, this movie,
0: yeah. And, you know, I'm like, I won't give the rest of the movie away, b- simply because there's just a lot going on. And then again, like, um, you know, there's a lot that happens after afterwards. But um to me, I feel like like this kind of character study is really appealing to me. Like I love these slice of life films and I love seeing all these characters interacting and how they're kind of like in this town and you know for our purposes of this episode I mean Cicely Tyson in terms of it being her first movie she's incredible like she has very dramatic scenes and uh, you know she's really like she shows a, like a full range of emotions like there's mm-hmm. parts where she's like crying and anguish, and there's parts where she's having a blast at the carnival which was really fun to see you know before obviously the violence part that happened later but um, yeah I don't know I mean to me again like the original book uh, was something that I read like a long time ago in high school and yeah. it, the, seeing this movie again made me want to pick the book up again and, and reread it because it's been a long time um, but um, yeah I mean this movie hits I love it it's great it's
1: so good and it's such a great like you said it's such a great initial role for someone it's such a great first role in film for someone and i think that like the way that she plays it is so full of life and so full of humanity and you know this scene where she's drunk and there's like she just really she's playing a very free spirited person and it just translates so well because of her ability to see the humanity in black in black people like like she said from the beginning like she's not going to do roles where she doesn't get to do that so right yeah could not have been a more perfect fit
0: yeah and it's um a great a movie that takes place... It's supposed to take place in Georgia, but it was actually filmed in Selma, Alabama, which I think is really cool, and shot by the incredible cinematographer, James Wong Howe. We've talked about him before. So, yeah, um, such a gem. And, you know, Sandra Locke and Alan Arkin were nominated for Oscars, you know? So, I don't know. If you've never seen it, check it out. It's a It's a good flick.
1: Great choice. A
0: great choice. I cannot... I was like let's get this part going so we can talk about Sounder. Oh, my <laughs> God. My movie.
1: my movie was released in 1972. It is also based on a book by the same name, uh, by William H. Armstrong, written by Lonnie Eldred III and directed by Martin Ritt. My movie is Sounder.
0: What do we make it to, Rebecca? Another season share cropping for old man Perkins. Working ourselves a death so he can get richer and we can't even eat when cropping time is done.
1: So I have, I do have a one sentence synopsis. A family is thrown into heartache and turmoil in depression era Louisiana after their father is sent to jail for simply trying to feed them. But don't worry, mama is there to
0: pick up the slack. That's absolutely right.
1: So I think that a, a, the, a lot of the way that this film was conceptualized is that it's a story of, it's a boy's journey from, you know, being a boy to being a man. Um but it's so much more layered than that. And it's so much more important that that Cicely Tyson has a more important role in that. Because yes, it is very much about the little boy um, played whose name is David Lee. He's played by Kevin Hooks. Um, and Paul Winfield plays his father, Nathan Lee. And so it's very much a story about a boy and his father, you know, a boy on his own. Um, but Cicely Tyson is so incredible in this movie. And it just really... If you haven't seen it, it's really not just a story of a particular time, like 1933 Louisiana, but it's a story of the continued sacrifice that Black women often have to make um, so that they can ensure the survival of their family and of themselves. So the movie starts out with a very intense raccoon chase and the loudest dog that has ever fucking existed. And the dog is named Sounder.
0: <laughs> I, real right off the bat, I I must be a fucking moron because I didn't realize that raccoons hissed when they were mad, <laughs> like a cat does. Raccoons are fucking mean. Yeah, that raccoon is in the in on the branch going ha ha, and I was like, whoa! I guess I've never seen a raccoon mad before. I've only seen them. <laughs> like, I guess, hanging out in front of dumpsters and being very happy.
1: <laughs> because they're like, look at all this food. Look at, look at the fucking jackpot. No, <laughs> raccoons are fucking mean. And you've never, unless you've chased one with a lantern at night, they're probably going to just kind of stay out of the way. But once you're chasing them with a loud dog and a lantern at night, they're like, fuck off. I know what's happening here. You're trying to put me on your
0: table. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. Time to get
1: loud. <laughs> uh, but it's like this chase through the woods and you get to see a lot of the the landscape of where we're living or where, where you know, this family family lives. And they, it's not successful. Like, the dad does not catch this raccoon. And there's he's like, fuck, there's going to be no meat on the table. Like, I'm just bummed out. But we did our best. Like, you can tell from the introduction that he has such a genial approach to life. And he's not mean to his children. He's not mean to David David Lee, who's like right next to him. Um, And it's kind of like his his sidekick. And so he shows his frustration, but then immediately pulls back and is like, but we did our best and we'll get it next time. And he's just really like a supportive dad. (laughs) Like he just really is like right off the bat. And you can tell that David Lee really enjoys being part of his father's life in that way. Like he's starting to feel a sense of importance. He's the oldest of three children. And, you know, his dad kind of relies on him um, for a lot. But... He also has his own goals, his own dreams, much like Mick in The Heart is a Lonely Hunter. Um, So they go home and we get to meet Rebecca, who is Cicely Tyson's character. And Rebecca is their mother. And she's so pissed because she's like, I've just shelled all these fucking walnuts and I'm trying to go into town and sell them. And David Lee just came home from this fucking hunt and ate half of them. (laughs) Like, I get it, but damn, (laughs) <laughs> but you get to see, like, where they live and kind of the the fact that they are sharecroppers. And if you don't know what sharecropping is, sharecropping was a system where a landlord or a person who owned a chunk of land um, kind of allowed a tenant to live there and use the land in exchange for a share of the crop. So it's like, all right, you're growing corn. Give me half your corn and you can live here and work the land. Um But it was an incredibly flawed system and super fucked up and usually was designed to keep people in poverty. So right off the bat, they would like lease equipment to their tenants and maybe give them tools and maybe buy them clothes. And so before you even plant a seed, most sharecroppers were deeply indebted to their landlords. Um, they also put in, like, these really arbitrary rules, like, you couldn't sell your crops to anyone else. There were also things like, what if you had a bad harvest and you can't give me what you owe me, so you're again going further into debt with me yeah. um, because you had a bad year. So it was really fucked. And again, they're they're renting. Like, nobody is, owns the land that they're working. Um, so the landlords kind of got the benefit of, like, free work and free labor, and free crops um, without giving anything to anyone beyond the comfort of, you can live here for as long as I say you can live here. It was really fucked, and it kind of went out of favor after the Great Depression uh, in the 40s sharecropping became like, just kind of faded into oblivion, um, because it's just been, it was just not a healthy system. And it affected white and Black people, Like two thirds, I think, of sharecroppers were white, I read on PBS. But it basically was a system to keep people impoverished.
0: Yeah. I, you know, it's funny. I was watching um, what is the Ken Burns documentary about country music? Uh, I think it's called Country Music, actually. (laughs) But um, I think it's called Ken Burns Country Music. Um, I'm an idiot. But are you re like the thing that kept popping up about like all of these like older country music artists is that all of their families were sharecroppers. Like right. Johnny Cash, like you know, anybody. Like, and I was just like, wow, like that's so interesting. Because yeah, I mean it's it is such a anytime I hear sharecropping, I'm like, poverty, right? Because mm-hmm. the system is so deeply fucked.
1: Completely fucked. And so you've got this family who's, you know, imagine again, because it still happens now, we don't call it sharecropping anymore, but imagine you're working the land, you're growing food, and you can't afford to feed your family. Like, how fucked is this world that you're like, I'm growing food, and I'm giving it to this fucking dude, and my family is starving. So after this hunt, when they wake up the next morning, miraculously, there's sausage, there's breakfast, like, David is psyched. He's like, I'm, I've am got to go to school, but I didn't expect there to be any food. And there is. And Rebecca and Nathan kind of have a tense little moment that they don't go too far into. But Nathan's like, well, I had to do what I had to do. And what you find out later is that Nathan has basically stolen this food from a local business and he's caught. So David Lee goes to school. I, there's one point where Rebecca says like, You know, it's six miles to school. You better get going. Can you fucking imagine? Like, I do not respect my ancestors enough. Like, walking six miles to go to school and and fucking... Then you get... Imagine imagine this. You're a sharecropper. You walk six miles to go to school. You're a little bit late, and the teacher kind of gives you a little side eye. And then when you get there, she's reading Huckleberry Finn, which is, like, the most racist text, (laughs) like, in terms of the representation of Black people. So this is his world. Like David is living in a really he's kind of got one foot in each world and he's definitely not comfortable with
0: it. Yeah. I mean that this that whole part about like him going it's at some point in the film it's revealed that the landlord was the one that got him into this school anyway, which it's like it was such a struggle to go to it's it's far away it's all white and he's kind of set up to fail i mean he can't help but be late and then when he shows up late everyone's staring at him like you know he's a big idiot and it's just sad Mm -hmm. it was just it just made me very sad for the for him because again it's like a system that's making people fail and it just was heartbreaking you know
1: absolutely and it, it 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 also, I think it's heartbreaking, too, because it really lands on this kid. Like, he's carrying a lot of psychic weight and a lot of the heft of, I know that I'm trying to do something different. He did get me into this school, but also we are still poor. We still don't have enough. I feel obligated to my family. And it's just. It's just so hard. Like, life is just hard for him. And then, he, you know, after school, he has to deliver laundry that his mother has been doing all day. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, we get to meet one of the clients, Mrs. Boatwright, who's this this white woman who's supposed to be, like, a good white woman, like a nice white woman, but she's still kind of employing these people and keeping them in a system where they're impoverished. And, you know, but she's, you know, she kind of gives David a book. The three, She gives him the Three Musketeers and is like, let's talk about it. Like, she's trying. But in... The way that we see a lot in this era, and still, um, and there's a moment I'll talk about in a little bit, where she's kind of indicative of the fact that white people will go right up to the brink, but they'll never go over the edge in terms of helping someone who's less fortunate yeah. or is helping someone who has a completely different class or racial status than they do. Yeah. Um so she again is set up as a kind of like the nice white woman character, but it's questionable to me. And I think that in my critical lens, I kind of still look at that character as you know, is she though? Is she? So, yeah. you know, again, like like I said, David is is one of three children. Uh, you've got Earl and Josie May, his brother and sister, who are younger. And then you know you get this great scene of of seeing. Nathan Lee playing baseball, and he's so good at it, and the family's having so much fun, and they have all these friends. One of the friends is Ike, who's played by Taj Mahal, who also did the music for the film. And um, he's just kind of walking and playing guitar, but they're just, like, they have a system. They they have a, a, a social system, they have a life, they have joy. It's not just all, we're working on a farm, and you don't get to see us as full people. Like, they go to church, like, they just have... Not just their family, but their extended family, which you can tell is very important to them. Yeah. And so at one point, you know, they come, they're coming home from that baseball game, and there are these two white guys on the porch, and they're the sheriffs. And they're like, fuck, because this is when Nathan gets found out that he has stolen this food. They've already walked into their house. You know, there's no sense of ownership. So they just walked in and they're like, yeah, we saw the food. So we know you did it, and you're coming with us.
0: And like, and the sheriff had like the ham in his hand or something. And I'm yeah. like, like, bitch. bitch, what the fuck? Like you walked into these people's, like, is it going to take half of a ham back? Like, what is your, yeah. what is your reasoning here? Like, You can just leave him the fucking ham? I know. <laughs> like, it's unreal.
1: And so they kind of put him in the back of this truck. And as they're taking them away sounder the dog starts chasing after his owner like they're very tight and this bastard shoots sounder and sounder takes the fuck off into the woods and for a few days they don't know if he's alive or dead and it's really sad because you're like all right this is a connective point if you're wondering why the movie is named sounder i think it's because there's a connective point between this dog the father and the son and he's really representative about like you know that the closeness of that relationship and the continuance of that relationship through this dog.
0: A hundred percent. Absolutely. And I when I tell you that this when that sheriff takes that shot, I get sent into a tailspin of hatred for that motherfucker. Like Absolutely. I'm like, this character <laughs> should fucking die. Sorry. Like, not only did he just take the fucking ham, but now you're shooting a dog. I mean, I think we can all universally agree that if you shoot a dog, you're a piece of shit. But, like, it's the beginning of this, of that fucking aggression. Because for the rest of the movie, he is a 110% piece of shit. And it's, like, that moment where I just get so keyed up because I'm like, how fucking dare this guy?
1: And it is, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's, a tra- it's a trauma point that's, that sets off the story because the father is taken away, the food is taken away, and the dog runs away. It's like in one fell swoop, this entire family's life and comfort and ability to survive is taken out. And I hate that fucking sheriff. That character can go straight to hell. Um, but this is also a moment where Rebecca starts shining. And Rebecca comes to the forefront. So you see the fact that she is instantly worried. She's, you know, kind of, she has to comfort her kids. Um, you know, she comforts David and tells him, like, you know, Sounder will come back. He's probably just hurt. You know, he's going to heal himself and come back. But then she's also really concerned for her husband. So she goes into town and wants to see him. And the sheriff is just like, no, you can't see him. Not only because it's not visiting day, but because you're a woman, so we wouldn't let you see him anyway. And too bad for you. And she's like, "What the actual hell? Like I can't find, <laughs> I can't see my husband. I can't of my dog. Like she's just truly concerned. Um, and she's also been told that he's going to be transferred to a labor camp and they won't give her the information about where or what that is. So, uh, the thing that was interesting to me about this, and the reason why I absolutely understand why both Paul Winfield and Cicely Tyson were nominated for Oscars for this movie, is you're seeing all of the emotional work and everything that she's trying to keep down while also trying, having to maintain her status as someone who's not a disagreeable Black person Right. in a moment where you absolutely should be disagreeable. But she's acting her fucking face-off in this instance where you're seeing her strength through the fact that she cannot... She's helpless. She cannot reply. She cannot question. She just has to go with the flow of this moment. And I think she just acts this... Not just this scene, but from this point on in the movie where we really start to focus on Rebecca you see that come through time and time again in so many ways and it's it's truly artistically wonderful.
0: Yeah, I mean the scene where she goes into the grocery store and you know it's just she's buying the ingredients to make a cake for her husband who is in jail, mm-hmm. right? And the owner of the store is basically like well, your husband stole from me. So, like, how can I even trust you? Like, you're, you know, you realize how much I've like stuck up for you. All this crap is like this kind of like, what, poor me, poor me. Like, you're such a bad person. And she's just like trying to keep it together. Like, she's just like, you know, and that, and that exactly what you said, that moment of like Cicely Tyson's face and her reactions to this shit. She's just like, I can't say anything. I just have to like keep it moving and. Well, it's it's anguishing it's complete
1: anguish, and the owner of that store is the landlord and so he's kind of like taunting her with like well, how are you gonna get me my fucking crops if your husband's locked away and you already owe, owe me money and the way that she responds to that is with such grace and to kind of say, well I didn't say I was gonna put this on credit and I didn't you know we're gonna we're gonna make sure that you get your crops like my my family and I my kids and I will make sure like she has to console this piece of shit while yep. she's going through one of the hardest emotional moments of her life in a time of such uncertainty for herself. And I just think, oh, God, she acted the hell out of that scene. And you feel the emotion of it. And so as as the story goes on, you kind of are seeing David having to make this tough decision. You know, can he actually go back to school? Because now he has to help with all the sharecropping. Um, and he is really kind of fraught. And it, there's, it's a fraught moment for him because he knows he has to help, but he also has his own goals and desires. Um, he brings a cake to his dad in jail and still can't find out where he's going. Um, his dad is its such a, again, it's such a weirdly sweet moment because it's so tense and so tough to see someone in that position. But, you know, the way he carries himself um You you know, you can tell it's because Rebecca has told him how to act and kind of told him, like, you know, bring your dad this cake and, you know, don't stay too long and don't don't be a don't be a bother. Just give him this cake. Find out where where he's he's going. And she's standing outside with the other two kids, and it's just so touching and and heartbreaking. So, and it's it's just again like moments of injustice that just punctuate the story in quiet ways, like the way that the sheriff pokes through the cake before he gives it back to him. He's like, oh, I gotta make sure there's no files in here, and he just, like, destroys this fucking cake um, before he gives it back. So these moments of injustice are perpetual, and you can see that Rebecca has to stand up to this and for this all the time. So there is a bit of good news because Sounder comes back and he's definitely hurt, but he comes back. And, and, you know, they're kind of just going on with their life and doing exactly what she said they were going to do, which is they're farming. Like, they're taking care of the crops. And so you see them harvesting and you see all the kids pitching in and you see them, you know, Rebecca, again, in a show of real strength. Like, you know, she's doing her ironing and she's doing her mending and she's keeping up with her job and then also doing her husband's job. And, doing it with a quiet, quiet resilience. Like, it's really remarkable. But David does go back to Mrs. Boatwright, delivers some laundry, and he's like, hey, wait a minute, like, you're a white lady, and you know people in town, maybe you can find it where my dad is. And she's like, I don't know. And then as he's walking away, she's like, all right, fine, I'll do it. Like, I'll find where your dad is. They go down to the jail together. The sheriff is like, I am not telling you that at fucking all. And then... (laughs) This Boatwright does a move that is like a real G of a move, I, to her credit, where the sheriff leaves the room and she just goes to the file cabinet and is like, I'm going to find out where the fuck he is. And the sheriff comes back and threatens her and is like, I could basically ruin your life and tell people that you're here trying to help a black person and I could ruin your life in this town. And she's like, wow, you really would do that, wouldn't you? And he's like, I absolutely fucking would. Ugh. Um. But when they leave, David's like, I know you saw what was on that paper. And she's like, yeah, I can't tell you. Like, let's pretend I didn't see anything. But then again, she comes back to the house a few days later and has a map and is like, all right, I really do know where your dad is. And here's he's in this, this work camp called the Wishbone Camp. And it's in this town. And this is probably the funniest scene in the movie to me where she's trying to read this map and absolutely cannot read this map. She's like, you know what I'm saying? And Rebecca's like, yeah, yeah, sure. And then five minutes later, she's talking to Ike, and Ike's like, all right, here's how you get there. <laughs> she's like, you do not know how to read a fucking map. I got this. Let me ask Ike. But again, she finds out where her husband is and then has the fortitude to send her young son to go find him. Yeah, And she has to have that... Again, that resilience to say, like, all right, my husband is already gone, but I'm now sending one of my children out into this world to try to find him. And he kind of does. Like, he goes to this camp, and he doesn't see his father, but he gets hit on the hand and gets harmed. But, you know, some of the prisoners are like, yeah, he's here, but don't bother us. Um, But because of this injury, he's trying to help him. You see him trying to really, like, take care of it himself and dipping his hand in the stream, and he's just it still hurts he's not able to care for himself because he's just a fucking child. So he does this really, I think it was a really smart move where he goes to a schoolhouse and this is where he meets uh, Mrs. Johnson and she is the teacher at the school and she's black and every kid in the school is black yeah. and he is fucking stunned. Yeah. Like he walks in and is like, um... Am I in the right place? <laughs> yeah, blows his but, mind, right? Yeah, it totally blows it. He doesn't even know this is a possibility in the world. And she's like, "Don't you go to school?" And he's like, "Yeah, but it is not like this." Yeah. So she she takes care of his hand and then invites him to stay for the night and kind of like have some comfort. And then she says, "You know, we'll I'll, we'll fix your hand, give you a hot meal, and help you find a way home." And This is a really pivotal scene for David because this is where he, when he gets to her house and he sees how she lives and it's like this really nice house and it's full of books. And she gives him a bunch of books to take with him. And he does make it back home and he tells his mom this story of like, you know, me and Sounder went on this fucking journey and didn't find dad, but I did find a life (laughs) and I found a future. And I was not expecting that shit. So... What I really love about this whole structure and the the introduction of Miss Johnson is we get to see not only these two different perceptions of what Black women could be in this time, but Rebecca instantly makes a choice. And again, through Cicely Tyson's acting, we get the best of this. Um, You're watching her really make a choice between, you know, do I send my son out into the world and let another Black woman raise him in a way that I can't do it? Yeah and she does she's like yeah you should maybe go to this school yeah. and maybe you should move far away and maybe that's what's best for you um and i don't want to ruin the end of the the end of the the movie um but i will say that it, it brings me to tears every time for r- reasons that you're not like, i can't say because i don't want to ruin it but there is just such a real Sense of love and devotion from Rebecca, and a real commitment to the emotional life of her children, and making sure that they don't develop that kind of hardness about the world. Right. And I think both Nathan and Rebecca do that for their kids, but you see it more with Rebecca because she's more present in the film because Nathan is sent away, um, you know, for a year, and it's it's just remarkable. I think that. The fact that she wanted to play a character with dignity, and then when you see her in this role, you're like, yeah, she absolutely did it. And I can see why she waited, and I can see why she didn't want to play the typical roles. And she really showed Hollywood that there was a way to write Black women differently. There was a way to portray Blackness differently. Yeah. And I don't think she gets en- enough credit for that. I don't think this movie gets enough credit for that. It was nominated for four Academy Awards, but I will say that I think it doesn't get enough credit for changing the structure of how Blackness is viewed on screen.
0: Yeah. Yeah, th- I, I don't want to give away the movie either, but maybe I'll dance around it, because I just want to talk about, like, literally my favorite part of the movie, Yeah, which is the scene of Cicely Tyson running. hmm and it's kind of like at a wide shot.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: you're just kind of seeing her run like through a field. Um, again, like not nah, I don't want to give the context because you know, whatever. I want you guys to see the movie if you haven't seen it, but like I cry yeah. so <laughs> hard every time I see that part. I cry every Same. fucking time. Like I'm th- I'm tearing up just thinking about it. Cause I'm just yeah. like, it's just like just the most wonderful, emotional, like, moment. And I just am like, yeah. I mean, it's such an iconic moment of the film and of her career. And I just feel like that, oh, my God. It's like everything I love about the movie in, like, one scene. Completely.
1: Oh, from the realization to the moment where she's running, it just takes me away. It just takes me out every time. And it's, you're right, like, it's the encapsulation of the film in a scene. And it's also a we're seeing the range of her acting abilities and her emotional life on the screen in that moment too. And it's just, it's really stunning. It feels so like I've, I it's rare that I feel so connected to a character who's lived such a different experience, but I think that her acting is what really brought it to life and brought it to brought it to life in a way that made it impossible to not have that connection with her in that, in that moment.
0: Yeah, total, totally agree. And not for nothing, I mean, I absolutely love um, Kevin Hooks in this movie. He's just mm-hmm. so precocious and sweet and, like, r- just really, like, loves his family and loves his dad, you know? Completely. And I don't know if anybody's... The, the way that I knew him as an actor was actually through a different movie. Like, there's a movie called Aaron Loves Angela yeah. from 1975 where he's in the movie with Irene Cara and... um so I I I saw him first in that film and then I and then I, of course I watched Sounder and I was like, I mean he's just such a a good actor even like as a little kid he's just yeah. he's so wonderful and he's like the heart of the film and he you know he obviously like kind of are on the journeys with him and it's it's amazing and I I I can't help but love a dog like an extremely loyal dog and people <laughs> who love their dog I mean come on like that. And this movie is so good. It's so good.
1: It's so good. And Kevin Hooks, by the way, has gone on to be a director and a producer, and he you know directs television and just has had a wonderful career, um, and just really carried this film. Like you said, he really was the beating heart. He 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 was the the narrative of the film. I think Cicely Tyson was the beating heart of the film. Yeah, um, yeah. I revise my answer. It's that I yeah.
0: revise my answer. That's 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 what I think. And um, she's. I mean, this is like her iconic role, I feel like. Completely. And I'm so glad if we got to watch it again. This uh, what know. so what did you think? I mean, we did, you know, a couple episodes for Black History Month. Thoughts on the month, thoughts on the the experience.
1: Yeah, I like that we focused on legacy and came at it from a couple of different ways and just really I just always I always love February. I always love talking about <laughs> I always yeah. love Black History Month and talking about films and really seeing the the swath of how Blackness is represented in film, which, again, we do all year long. But I just I love it. I, lo- I think it's, it's really important to focus on these these cultural moments that revolve around legacy.
0: Yeah, agreed. And like, you know, with the Aaliyah episode, I mean, we talk about two Black women and one whose career was very short and mm-hmm. one whose career was very long. And so I like that, too. It's a good, it's a good contrast and I like the month. So um, if you guys have any thoughts or just want to email us, we are at, I saw what you did pod at gmail.com.
1: And we also have a PO box. If you want to send us handwritten letters, uh, which you can find on our socials uh we are at, I saw pod on Instagram and Twitter.
0: That's right. And we have merch. So if you want some go to the, I saw what you did section of the exactly right shop to find everything you'd possibly want.
1: Get yourself a wall-hanging kit. Give yourself something to do while you're watching the movies that we're giving you every week. I mean, it's such a great kit. I love that Bargello kit. Um, And we also have bonus episodes. Our new bonus episodes are now dropping on the main feed every third Thursday of the month. Uh, Plus, the old bonus episodes are going to slowly trickle out onto the main feed every couple of weeks on Wednesdays. Uh, If you have Wondery Plus, keep subscribing because you get our main feed episodes a week early. Uh, So thank you for for being a subscriber.
0: And thank you for helping us get to 100 episodes. I know, I was going to say, it's a fucking pleasure to do 100 episodes with you. Um, 100 years. All right, well then, so what are the movies for our next episode?
1: The movies for our next episode are, I I think, going to make it impossible to guess the theme. Truly. Truly. Uh, Because we are asking you to watch Frank, which was released in twenty fourteen, and The Baby, which was released in nineteen seventy three. And oh. just a sign of the cross, if you can guess this theme, you should play the lotto.
0: Yeah. I don't don't be too rocked by these choices, <laughs> by the way.
1: <laughs> or do be too rocked. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh gosh. Well, Congratulations, Danielle. We made it to 100, and um, I can't wait to do more.
1: Here's to 100 more. See
0: you later, everyone.
1: This has been an Exactly Right production. Produced by Casey O'Brien. Mixed by Edson Choi. Our theme song is by Tom Bryfogel, Artwork by Garrett Ross. Our executive producers are Georgia Hardstart, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at I Saw Pod, and you can email us at I Saw What You Did Pod at Gmail. Follow I Saw What You Did on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. And if you like what you hear, rate and review the show. And visit exactlyrightstore.com to purchase I Saw What You Did merch.